Hello, dear listeners and readers alike, and welcome to our very first edition of Listening In. My name is Francesca. You are listening to CKTZ Cortez Community Radio 89.5 on your FM dial, home of the freaking frequency. We are here for you during this time of COVID-19, and we know you're here for us. Uh, we're bringing you Intrepid Community Radio. Today on our show, you are going to be listening in to yours truly here, myself, read a brief passage from Kate Harris's brilliantly original book, Land of Lost Borders, Out of Bounds on the Silk Road. I loved this book. Um, it's a highly engaging, and I would say including, because uh, Harris includes the reader in her intrepid journey by bicycle with her childhood friend, Melissa, as they bicycle through Marco Polo's famed Silk Road. Here's what Harris has to say about that Silk Road uh, in Chapter 4, Undercurrents. The Silk Road is old news now, fable uncombed from fact, once a dynamic flux of trade and ideas between Europe and Asia. This bygone caravan route now mostly traffics in drugs and violence at worst, myths and souvenirs at best. Where is Mel and I hoped to avoid as we set off down it on our bicycles? This is not just a travel book. It's a deeply felt meditation on borders, how to form them, how to flaunt them, or even find them if you dare. The language with which Harris writes shimmers with ardor and integrity, and the book has won several notable awards. So I do hope that um, the Campbell River Museum out across the water in Campbell River and Hague Brown House will take notice and will invite her to be their writer-in-residence. At some point, once we come back, I'll come back from COVID-19 According to a Globe and Mail review of Harris's book, this book is full of passages that just beg to be out, read out loud, even if no one's listening. But we are all listening in to the preface of Land of Lost Borders by Kate Harris. The end of the road was always just out of sight. Cracked asphalt deepened tonight beyond the reach of our headlamps, the thin beams swallowed by a blackness that receded before us, no matter how fast we biked. Light was a kind of a pavement thrown down in front of our wheels, and the road went on and on. If I ever reach the end, I remember thinking, I'll fly off the rim of the world. I pedaled harder. The evening before, Melissa and I had carefully duct-taped over the orange reflectors on our wheels. Then, just after midnight, we crawled out of our sleeping bags, dressed in black thermal long underwear, packed up camp, and mounted our bicycles. As we rode toward Kuri, a tiny outpost in western China, only our headlamps gave us away, two pale flares moving against the grain of the stars. We clicked off the lights as we neared the town. It was 3 a.m. and moonless, the night air was cool for July and laced with the sweet breath of poplars and willows that grew in slender wands beside the river. No clear divisions between earth and sky, light and dark, just a lush and total blackness. 
I couldn't see the mountains, but I could sense them around me. Sharp curses of rock. The kind of country that consists entirely of edges. Sometimes Mel and I drifted blindly into each other, our bulky panniers acting like bumpers. We navigated by the sound of our wheels, a hushed whirring indicating the pavement, a rasp of gravel, the road shoulder and the need for a course correction. Traveling by bicycle is a life of simple things taken seriously. Hunger, thirst, friendship, the weather, the stutter of the world beneath you. I was so focused on listening to the road that I didn't notice the glint of metal until Mel did. That's it, she whispered, the checkpoint. A guardrail scissored the road ahead and somewhere beyond it, mythic and forbidden, was the Tibetan plateau. Though Kuti isn't technically in the Tibet autonomous region or Tar as China has designated the formerly sovereign nation, the village hosts the first and most formidable military checkpoint on the only road into the western part of Tibet, a place foreigners require permits and guides to visit. Mel and I had neither. We didn't want to subsidize the Chinese occupation of Tibet by paying to go there, and we lacked the money for permits anyway. Plus, we'd just graduated from university and felt young and free and rashly unassailable. Never once had we met a barrier we couldn't muscle past. So we took a deep breath, looked both ways, and biked directly under the raised guardrail. Nothing happened. Somewhere to my left, a river sounded like wind. The stars looked freshly soldered above the dark metal of the mountains, faintly visible now that our eyes had adjusted. Mel was a whim of a shadow to my left, but I could feel her giddiness. Or maybe it was my own, adding a kind of shimmer to the air. The world seemed preternaturally honed and heightened, our vision and hearing sharper. I watched a star shoot to the horizon with an afterimage trailing behind it. Did you see that? I whispered. When that same star shot up again, we shoved our bikes into the ditch and ran. The flashlight scanned the road, moving closer in clean yellow sweeps. Mel dove into the ditch a few meters from our bike, and I bolted senselessly towards the nearest building, where I flattened myself against a wall. I heard footsteps approach, the click of heels on concrete, and regret seared me. I would never be a Martian explorer now. Instead, I'd spend the rest of my days in a Chinese prison, desperately wishing I had something to read. With my cheek pressed against concrete, I stared up. If the heavens aligned, I told myself, if a single constellation clicked into place, the Big Dipper, say, or Cassiopeia, would be saved. I scanned the night sky for some reassuring sign, any familiar map to orient myself by. Ironic, I suppose, when the great goal of my life was getting lost. But the stars reeled and spun and refused all their usual patterns. 
The footsteps came closer and closer and stopped. Then I spotted the Big Dipper pouring out of the sky. The footsteps started again, moved closer, and faded away. I didn't dare move or breathe or glance at Mel, who was still playing dead somewhere in the ditch. A few minutes or an eternity later, a truck sputtered into gear and drove off the way we'd come. The night settled back into silence. We grabbed our bikes and continued racing through Cootie, instantly unrepentant. Fear exhausted itself into euphoria, a sense of irrational hope. The man with the flashlight surely saw us, pathetic and full of prayers in the ditch and against the wall. A couple of dogs with our heads tucked under the couch, believing our whole bodies hidden. At the very least, he must have spotted our bikes overturned in the ditch, their wheels spinning uselessly. Why he decided to move on was a mystery we didn't question, in part because we were too winded to talk. But even as Mel and I pedaled hard towards the Tibetan plateau, I noted the bomb-like ticking of excess reflector duct tape against the front fork of my bike. Tick, 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 tick. The sound went, a gentle yet ominous stutter. I should trim that, I thought to myself. That's when a second checkpoint, the real checkpoint, loomed from the darkness like a bad dream. This time the guardrail was lowered, thigh-high, and secured with chains. Lighted concrete buildings edged the checkpoint on both sides, though we couldn't see anyone in them. Mmm, I stopped pedaling, letting my bike coast and slow. Yeah, Mel acknowledged, but her voice came from somewhere ahead of me. I hesitated for a beat and started pedaling again. If Mel wasn't about to back down, neither was I. Throw your heart over the fence, our pony club instructors had always urged us, and the rest of you will follow. Hopefully the horse and saddle too, they'd add with a grin. The only way to test the truth of a border is to ride hard toward it and leap, or, if circumstances demand it, crawl. Exposed in the pale light leaking from the checkpoint buildings, Mel and I glanced at each other one last time. Then we scuttled on hands and knees beneath the guardrail, dragged our loaded bikes after us, and pedaled as fast as we could into forbidden territory. You've been listening in to Land of Lost Borders, Out of Bounds on the Silk Road by Kate Harris. Uh, the end of the road for Kate Harris after this particular journey was, believe it or not, northern B.C. She settled up in Atlin, where she built herself a cabin and lives off-grid. Typical, wonderful for an explorer. She does come out of her cabin, apparently, for uh, wonderful speaking engagements. So now we're going to listen to her tell us a few things in her own words. This is the um, presentation that she gave for Walrus Talk Explorations. Right. Good evening, everyone. Uh, my name is Kate Harris, and when I was a kid, I wanted to be an explorer. And I mean an explorer in the, like, historic, great generalist sense of the term, you know, one of those intrepid 
Shackleton or Nansen types with a, a knack for slogging and a disdain for the status quo and ideally a spare euphoric prose style. Um, but I grew up in small town Ontario. Uh, so if you've, if you've been there, you know that there aren't many mountains, there aren't many deserts, there aren't many of the places that explorers tend, tend to go. Um, so I looked around, the tallest mountain I could see was a haystack, the widest horizon was a, a field of corn, and it was pretty clear I'd been born centuries too late, or at least provinces away from the kind of life I was meant to live. And the more quaint my surroundings, the more I craved the total opposite. And uh, I wanted the sort of wildness that could, that could wipe me out if I wasn't equal parts bold and careful. And in small town Ontario, where I found that wildness was in books. And one of my favorites when I was really little was this children's illustrated edition of Marco Polo's travels on the Silk Road. Um, Silk Road was an ancient caravan route that for a thousand years, and in some ways still, ferried people, goods, and ideas from Europe to Asia and back, so from the Black Sea to the Tibetan Plateau. And as a kid, I was desperate to see these places, but my, my family could never afford to travel. And uh, I, I was worried that by the time I could actually, you know, work and, and save up enough to go there myself, that they'd, they'd be as fenced over and paved and tame as southwestern Ontario. And so I realized that my only safe bet was to look beyond this planet. And um, in my teens, I decided that uh, the rational thing to do was to become a scientist with the goal of, of someday emigrating to Mars. Now, I think most teenagers long for another world, but as far as I could tell where I grew up, I was the only one in my little town that pined specifically for the red planet. And I studied really hard in hopes of, of launching there someday. And I didn't doubt my extraterrestrial mission in life until I had the chance uh, during university to spend two weeks um, in Hanksville, Utah, at a place called the Mars Desert Research Station. Now, Hanksville is best known as the, the former desert hideout of Butch Cassidy and the Wild Bunch. Uh, it's where they'd go to shake off law enforcers in a maze of red canyons. And today, those same canyons host a slightly less wild bunch of uh, researchers that come from all over the world to wear mock spacesuits and basically go through all the motions of, of living on Mars in order to prepare for someday going there. So for a while, this was fun. It was kind of like this grown-up game of make-believe. But as I trudged around Utah wearing this, this canvas onesie and uh, a plastic bubble on my head, I was pretty disconcerted by the fact that whenever I looked at a mountain, I saw this veneer of plexiglass. And whenever I reached out to touch canyon walls the color of embers, I just felt the synthetic fabric of my glove. And as all kinds of weather howled outside my spacesuit, all I could hear was the radio or its static um, or my own percussive panting like I was breathing down my own neck. So the very technologies that, that would keep me alive on Mars made me feel at a deep remove from the place. All my interactions with it uh, neutered and sterile and, and more than slightly absurd, especially when we ran out of food on the red planet and we had to go to the local grocery store wearing spacesuits to resupply our rations. So after two weeks of following orders, uh, speaking in acronyms, breathing recycled air, I'd kind of had my fill of, of living on Mars and I was really homesick for my native planet. And the whole experience made me question, you know, what is, what am I really after in exploration? Um, and I questioned it even more as I learned more about its kind of darker history. Far from being seekers of truth and beauty, 
um, as I'd kind of naively believed, many explorers, including Marco Polo, were actually servants of commerce and conquest uh, with, with really brutal consequences for the, the places and the people that they claimed to have discovered. Uh, just ask those indigenous to um, this place we call Canada now. And I wanted no part in that. Uh, what I longed for and what I called exploration, really for the, the lack of a better word, was the feeling I got when I, when I looked up at the stars or when I read uh, a really gorgeous poem. And I realized that I, I craved the same thing from, from both exploration and, and literature. Um, I wanted life or language to pummel me with its power again. I wanted a kind of intimacy with immensity. So, logically, instead of going to Mars, I decided to bike the Silk Road. Um, it turns out you don't have to go very far to feel like you've launched to another world. Uh, you can just go to Uzbekistan. And it was so hot there by day that my friend Melissa and I, my traveling companion, resorted to biking at night. And the desert was so dark and so flat that it was as if the constellations came right down to Earth, um, with stars hovering all around us at eye level. And so it was like we were traveling to them or, or, or through them. And in a way, it was like being on Mars only better because I could breathe. I could laugh out loud. I could feel the wind on my face. And spacesuits, as I learned in Utah, really wall you off from a lot. You know, we long our whole lives for, for things we've never known and places we've never been. Um, abstractions like happiness and success and exploration that um, we sort of affix to certain achievements and lives, and in my case, planets. But abstractions can come alive to us in such unexpected ways. And I think it's very easy to get stuck on, on the letter of a thing as opposed to its spirit and on the specifics of an enterprise as opposed to its, its essence. And as I say it now, exploration really isn't about planting flags and, and leaving footprints. It isn't about how far you can go and how much you can suffer along the way. It's really about how willing you are to let an experience rewrite your maps. And uh, the poet T.S. Eliot famously said that the end of all our exploring will be to arrive back where we started and know the place for the first time. But I don't actually think he went far enough there. I don't think the point is to get to know this pale blue dot we all call home, uh, to map it in ever more detailed ways, or even to know the universe in which we're situated. I think the point is to come to care for this place, to feel a sense of, of loyalty and belonging to it. Because for all its, its flaws and its fences, um, it's kind of the best thing we have going in the universe. Uh, it's the only place we can breathe. And I don't think we need any better reason than that to, to really look after it. So that's, that's ultimately what my great, my great hope is for exploration um, in the world, um, beyond the world, and in words, this, that's what exploration can do these days. It can wake us up to wonder. It can shake us from our complacency. And it can make people fall so in love with this planet that they'll never be tempted, as I once was, to abandon it for Mars. Thank you. That was Kate Harris, dear listeners, uh, giving her presentation for Walrus Talk Explorations. And today's feature on Listening In was Kate Harris's book, Land of Lost Borders, Out of Bounds on the Silk Road. So glad you could join us for this edition. Now, this is our first show. So what exactly will we be doing on Listening In? And why are we here? 
Well, for me, the inspiration for the show gelled from several different sources. Firstly, I'm very intrigued by Audible's slogan. Audible, of course, is the world's largest library of audiobooks, a producer and seller of spoken audio entertainment and information. And its slogan is, listening is the new reading. Now, what does that mean exactly? Listening is the new reading. Who's listening? Who's reading? How can listening and reading be the same thing? Uh, Of course, for Audible... That probably means, hey, you don't have to, what they're probably trying to say basically is, hey, you don't have to read anymore. Just listen to us. We'll do the reading for you. Just sit back and listen. Sounds lovely. But then, of course, who's choosing what we listen to? Who's reading? No doubt that Audible paid big bucks for those five little words. Listening is the new reading. Amazon, by the way, which is the um, parent company of Audible, Um, is trading at the time of this recording, which is mid-May 2020. It's trading at 2,424 U.S. dollars, up, oh, about $700 (laughs) from its price of roughly 1,700 U.S. dollars at the onset of the COVID-19 pandemic. This at a time when the market is taking a tumble, a correction, as we politely call it. That brings me to my second source of inspiration, and that is an article that I read in our very own Canadian Quill and Choir magazine. The article, it's got a big title for an article, it's called um, Selective Listening. It's about an online campaign revealing the tensions between Canadian libraries and multinational publishers over digital pricing and audiobook availability. That's the title of the article. Um, it was written by the uh, magazine's editor, Sue Carter, who's been following the audiobooks market and trends for a number of years now. So in the article, Carter chronicles the, um, the Canadian Urban Libraries Council's efforts to engage both readers and publishers on the uh, way that uh, audiobooks essentially are brought to market and uh, certain business practices from big publishers like Audible or the, you know, Canada's big five publishing houses, which the um, Libraries Council uh, addressed directly. Uh, and it, it, its efforts to educate both readers and publishers on how these practices are essentially adversely affecting the choices of what's available in our public libraries or access to audiobooks. Um, the big publishers can afford to put them out, but the little publishers are struggling like crazy um, to keep up. You can lo- download the article uh, if you like in its entirety from Pocket Mags. Uh, Quill and Choir is available on Pocket Mags. Essentially, then, listening in as a response to this dialogue, this discussion on the issues of audiobooks and digital rights and what's listening and reading and how are they interchangeable? How do we listen and read one another? or to one another for that matter. What we're going to be doing on listening in is very simple. We're going to be reading out loud brief passages of books, books that we like, books that people recommend, mostly island writers, um, Vancouver Island, because we're situated uh, on Cortez, uh, Cortez Community Radio, mostly small publishers, mostly BC books, hoping to bring these books to a wider audience, essentially. We want to encourage you to listen and read at every opportunity. Read to your neighbor. 
Read to your father, your sister. Sit down and listen to your cook read. Read to your dog. Here on Quadra in the time of COVID-19, a couple of ingenious folks have gotten together and created a very original book club. Uh, instead of actually coming to the book club and um, discussing a book that we've read, we come to the book club where we gather outside. We maintain a social distance of at least two meters. We gave up the idea of having a picnic because we thought, well, COVID-19, let's just, let's just keep things simple. But instead of talking about the book, we actually take turns reading from the book to one another. We read and we listen. So let's get creative with how we're listening and how we're reading. Let's stay connected by listening in. And thank you so much for joining us today. Another feature of listening in is going to be to promote a local independent bookstore, to just mention them on the air, to just acknowledge them. And for today's bookstore, I'm going to take a page right out of one of BC's wonderful little-known publications put out by the BC Federation of Writers. It's called WordWorks. It has a lot of wonderful information, very useful information about writing, the publishing industry, the, the skill, the art, the business. And today's cover, or rather mo the most current edition of the magazine's cover, features uh, the team from Mulberry Bush Books. Barbara and Tom Pope, and I'm going to read what the magazine says about Mulberry Bush Books. All of us who want to be published hope to end up in a bookstore very much like the Mulberry Bush Bookstore in Parksville and Qualicum Beach. Tom and Barbara Pope have been in the business 30 years, having thrived despite competition from chapters, Amazon, and eBooks. They and other resilient bookstores in BC are deeply committed to readers, writers, publishers, and to their communities. At this publication, the store is closed to walk-in traffic due to COVID-19. Tom and Barbara and their staff are behind closed doors, busy fulfilling online orders. Uh, their bookstore has over 8 million titles, taking phone orders and talking to people through the glass by the phone, helping them choose a book for curbside delivery. Retirement will have to wait, though they are ready to retire and have the business up for sale. We're not in any hurry. We want to find the right buyers, and we'll mentor them as long as they need help. Our primary concern is to look after our staff and make sure their jobs are secure. Our professional booksellers are like family. They're the center of the business, and we couldn't run it without them. Tom and Barbara are looking forward to retirement, but will continue volunteering and working for literacy. We always want to be part of the community, and we have two beautiful communities to be a part of. And on that timely note, dear listeners, I'm going to invite you to be a part of this on-air community known as Listening In. Tune in next week when we go on a squash-buckling adventure on the seas just around Discovery Islands on a book called Ghost Sea, written by Ferenc Matei.